Um, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22 is where we're going to land this morning. Um, have you ever read a bit in the Bible where you're like, I don't like that? <laughs> let's, just, let's just be honest. That's a, that's a hard one uh, for me. Uh, one of my professors in Bible college said something that has shaped the way that I, um, I desire to teach and, and, and hopefully do from week to week around here. He said, if you, if you want to change the world, all you need is a Bible and a newspaper. And uh, the reason he said that was because the Bible is the uh, prescriptions necessary in order to affect the change in the world around us. And the newspaper just happens to highlight for us what's happening in the world around us. And I don't know if you've ever been in the place before where I've been, and if we're all honest, we sometimes can look at the church and we can say the church is answering questions that we're not asking. And it's speaking to things that many times don't need to be spoken to, and it's missing the mark on speaking to the things that need to be spoken to. And uh, what I want to do is I want to speak to some things that need to be spoken to this morning. Uh, not just for our church, but for our, for our nation, I think, and for our world. And, uh, and also I would say with this piece of scripture, uh, as, the, as the senior pastor of this church, I would be not doing my job if I skipped moments like this. If I skipped moments of scripture that I just didn't want to handle because it was kind of hard, right? And, uh, and so that's what we're going to dig into this morning. We've got some big things to talk about and some ground that we need to cover. And so I want to invite you to just lean in with me this morning and know this right out the gate. I love you. Okay? I love you, but we got to tackle some issues this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Paul writes, and he says this, So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. How many of you like that nickname? Um, that'd be a lot of fun. Hey, this is my friend circumcision. Um, at that time, <laughs> at that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel. And I want you to hear these words that Paul uses because they're on purpose. So he uses this word excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who made both groups. So he uses this term, both groups. Why? Because he's trying to highlight a divide that had taken place. One and tore down. He, broke, he made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. How many of you would agree with me that there's some dividing walls of hostility currently happening in our world? All right? In his flesh he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in what? Peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news, come on somebody, the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, every shout in him. Come on, we shout, in him. Yeah. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Today, as we continue on in our series, Citizens and Saints, I want to speak to you from the subject, dressing Jesus, dividing us. Dressing Jesus, dividing us, as we look at the issue of division in our world, in our nation, and the healing that is found in 
Jesus. Will you pray with me just one more time this morning? Father, we need your word this morning. May these words, may they not be my words, but may they be your words. God, I pray that you would remove me out of the way. God, I pray that you would be seen in this moment this morning. I pray that we would come to this moment as we hear your word with humility, with grace. God, I pray that we'd come to this moment with soft hearts, open minds, and ears that are positioned to listen to what it is that you have to say to us, God. I thank you for what it is that you're doing in this place. I thank you for every single Bible-believing church that is lifting up your name this morning, God. I thank you for what it is that you're doing in this valley. God, I pray that even the little part that we have to play, that we would do so with passion and integrity and character, God. So speak to us right now. We are listening. We need you in Jesus' mighty name. Come on, and everybody shouted. Amen. Amen. I don't know if you ever thought back to what you wore in high school. If, you ever, if you've ever done it, it's pretty hilarious. Um, I remember some of the things that I used to wear, and thank God I burnt them. Um, you guys remember Jankos, corduroy Jankos? Come on, somebody. <laughs> Can I get a witness in church? <laughs> I, was, uh, I was a child of the, of the late 80s, early 90s. Um, I, did, I did wear my overalls backwards because crisscross made me jump, jump. All right? <laughs> That was my, that was my upbringing. Uh, and I think back to some of those days in high school, and it all changed. I mean, we went through different variations and, and, and so on and so forth as I got older. But one thing I started to think about this week as I was kind of preparing this message, um, the clothes that we wore in high school, they, they actually did something that I don't think we realized that we're doing, or maybe we completely did. Our clothing ideas and the things that we put on, they didn't unite us, they divided us, didn't they? They created different groups within our, within our lunchroom. You remember those groups? We had, and, and I know the terminology's changed and it's gone in different directions, but we had like the jocks, right? And we had, we had the nerds. And like in, my, like in my neighborhood or in my school, we had the gangsters, which didn't make sense because like I lived in the most suburban area on the planet. And I was like, you're only gangsters, your mom. Like, what are you talking about, right? And we had all these, and we had the hicks, and like, and, and if you're a country guy, like, I'm sorry, that's just what we called them in high school, and they wore cowboy boots and wranglers and held tight to Garth, and so, <laughs> and as we wore these clothes, something interesting happened. It didn't unite any of us, it divided our lunchroom, didn't it? It put us into different demographics and different people groups, and, and, and it created these huddles Right? It created these huddles that would take place in our lunchroom, and they, they wouldn't cross the lines because you came from here, and you wore this, and you did this, and, and everything that we put on would define us. And I started to realize something, and maybe you would agree with me on this, nothing's changed. The interesting thing is that it hasn't changed. We are still dividing things. And not only are we dividing things, we're dressing Jesus up in our bias in our preference, in our personal ideologies to support what we have divided. (laughs) And Jesus did not come to divide, he came to unite, he came to reconcile, he came to mend and heal the division that is fostered and created in a broken world. Here's the the thing I want us to understand this morning as we we dig into this, we were never meant to dress Jesus, we were meant to be dressed like Jesus. And I want to submit to us this morning that we've put some things on Jesus. We've dressed Jesus in some things. We've put some different articles of clothing on him in order to fit our brand of Jesus. And that's what I want to deal with this morning. And I'm going to let you know right out the gate, we have to wrestle with these things. 
We've got to work through these things. This is Bible, and I'm going to have a lot of Bible for you this morning, so you know that I'm not just giving my opinion. I'm trying to station us in Scripture so that we understand when we come to the full counsel of God's Word, it has the ability to change us, not the opinion of Jason. And so we're going to dig in a little bit. So what I want to do, if we were never meant to dress Jesus, Jesus was supposed to dress us, I think we need to look at some things that we have a tendency to dress Jesus in. All right? And the first one's this. The first thing that we tend to dress Jesus in is we dress Jesus in our politics. I love you, church. <laughs> we dress Jesus in our politics. John chapter 18, 28 through 38. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They did not enter the headquarters themselves, otherwise they would have been defiled and unable to eat the Passover. This is Jesus' last moments as he's dealing with with Pilate. So Pilate came out to them and said, what charge do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Pilate told them, you take him and judge him according to your law. And they said, it's not legal for us to put anyone to death. They said this so that Jesus' words might be fulfilled, indicating what kind of death he was going to die. Then Pilate went back into the headquarters, summoned Jesus, and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, are you asking this on your own? Or have others told you about me? He says, I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied, your own nation and the chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? And this is what Jesus says. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. You are a king then, Pilate asked. You say that I'm a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this, and I've come into this world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate asked, what is truth? It's a significant moment, probably one of the, one of the most in-depth and, and charged conversations that take place all of Scripture between Jesus and somebody who is in a position of authority. One author put it this way, and I quote, the spectrum of political parties was wide and multifaceted, including the Pharisees, the Essenes, the Zealots, the Sadducees, and even the tax collectors. When Jesus established his kingdom on earth, he entered into this political fray. Who would he choose? What would be their view of Israel, of the Roman Empire, of their involvement in culture and government? Jesus chose amongst his disciples, two in particular, Simon and Matthew. So many times we simply examine the scriptures and the disciples from a purely ministerial relational view in conjunction with Jesus, don't we? We're like, oh, they were just his buddies. But as Jesus would choose his 12, there was so much more happening and so much more being taught. I mean, if you realize that when Jesus does something, there's probably a lot more that he's doing than what we even realize, right? So he's choosing these knuckleheads. He's bringing them together. Simon was a zealot. The zealots were a political party that were both violent and rebellious towards the Roman Empire and regime. Their expressed and desired goal was with militant force to drive out the Roman Empire from what was known as the Holy Land. Early definitions of this political party would define them today as this, terrorists. The Roman Empire became targets for violence and attacks on behalf of the zealots, and Jesus would choose Simon, one of these men, to be one of his closest and trusted disciples. This is the man from this party of people that Jesus would pull close and say, follow me. He would choose another guy named Matthew. He came representing a complete and total other side of the spectrum. Matthew was a tax collector. To you and I, that may not seem like a big deal. Maybe to some of us, we don't like tax collectors anyways. But in this culture, in this moment in time, they were reviled, they were despised, they were enemies of all, especially the zealots. 
Because the tax collectors exacted unfair and cruel amounts of tax from their own people who were at that time impoverished, marginalized, and held down. To the zealots and many other groups, they were seen as traitors, villains, and despots. Jesus would go to Matthew and say the same exact thing that he would say to Simon, follow me. This is important because we need to understand this because talk about an uncomfortable introduction. Matthew meets Simon, Simon meet Matthew, you are now going to do ministry with each other for the next three years. Yay. He's bringing these two groups together. And it would be really easy at this moment to assume that Jesus was either a horrible leader, crazy, or he was trying to do something much more significant than just build his ministry team. See, Jesus was trying to strip away everything that they had put on him. Jesus was trying to show these two very politically impassioned men that who he was to them and for them was not who they wanted him to be. And he wasn't who they needed him to be because they had dressed Jesus. I want you to hear something this morning, church. Jesus did not come to represent their political party or persuasion. He came to represent a kingdom that was not of this world. And that is why he taught the disciples to pray. And I want us to read this prayer from the context of what we just set up. That Jesus didn't come to represent our political persuasion. He didn't come to meet his disciples' political persuasion. So then he would teach them how to pray. Watch what he would say. He said, therefore you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, when we dress Jesus in our politics, we miss the kingdom that we've been called to be a part of. Jesus was not a Republican. Ah. Let that sit for a minute. But Jesus wasn't a Democrat either. Jesus was not an independent or any other party. Listen, Jesus was a king. That's the difference. And we want him to be Republican. We want him to be Democrat. We want him to be independent. We want him to, to, to take on our political persuasion so we put it on him. And Jesus is simply saying, no, no, don't put that on me. Because when you put your politics on me, you strip away my power of being king. I exercise authority as a heavenly king, not authority as a political party. See, don't run to Jesus for his political persuasion to find healing. I run to the king of the universe to find only what he can give me through his power that comes on behalf of his lordship, not his political persuasion. So we dress Jesus in our politics. Number two. Y'all ready? <laughs> I love you. But I'm being a pastor this morning. Number two, we dress Jesus in our nationalism. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. <laughs> there is a massive difference between patriotism and nationalism. And it's not a new concept or a problem facing the church. Paul had to deal with this issue with the Galatian church. Galatians chapter 3, 27 through 28 says this, For those of you who are baptized into Christ, watch what he says, have been clothed in Christ, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ. 
Now, the Jews and the Greeks would have been furious at Paul for writing that. Because they stripped away, he stripped away their nationalistic view on things. Now, I want to say this out the gate before I dig in right here. I love America. I'm proud to be an American. I'm proud of our servicemen and women, those who have died and fought for our country and all those things. This statement that I'm making in no way denies my love, my patriotism. But we need to understand something. Being a patriot and a nationalistic person is totally different. Okay? One author put it this way as he would end up quoting C.S. Lewis. He says, it's easy for Christians to begin to worship their country as an idol. In the four loves, C.S. Lewis puts the matter quite succinctly. He notes that love of country becomes a demon when it becomes a god. And this is a big issue that we're facing in our nation right now. But it's not a new issue at all. Jesus himself had to deal with this issue as he would assess the differences between patriotism, nationalism, and kingdom-mindedness. In Luke chapter 13... Verses 31 through 35, we see this transaction that takes place between Jesus and the Pharisees. And then Jesus would say this. This would be his lament, his passion, his desire for his nation. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house is abandoned to you. I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In G.K. Chesterton's work that defended a collection of essays, he writes, true good patriotism lies in the ability to judge one's nation in its successes and its shortcomings. However, staunch nationalism disables us from recognizing the truth and reality that our nations and countries of origin provide us. That truth being that they are, in fact, imperfect and deeply flawed, no matter how great they are. Jesus recognizes this and laments this fact in Luke 13. See, Jesus loved his nation and his country, but he was not blind to the realities that it faced, the deep hurts that it had produced, and the fractures that were causing division and brokenness. And instead of ignoring it on on behalf of nationalism, he opened his eyes to it and said, wait a second, I've come to establish something greater, my kingdom, his will. And this is why we can't dress Jesus in our nationalism. We here in the Western world, in America especially, have a tendency to do this, don't we? When we see Jesus as an American, then we define his word to us through American filters, and this changes the tone and the truth of his word and desire for each one of our lives and for the church that he said he would build. Nationalistic faith is not biblical faith. Faith rooted, come on home. Faith rooted in an earth-shattering experience with Jesus, his grace, and perfect love. That is biblical faith. We've dressed Jesus in our ideologies, our preferences, our sociological norms, and idealistic inclinations. In America especially, Jesus has become something and someone entirely different than who he really is. We've made Jesus an American CEO concerned only about our health, our financial success, our budding ambition, our security, and our American dream. And in doing so, he stopped being our savior. I love you. (laughs) So we dress Jesus in our nationalism. And when we do that, especially as Americans, we miss the opportunity to minister to the America that's hurting right now. 
because we see it in American ways. And we miss the ability to enter into the world at large that God's called us to serve because we see it through American eyes. This is the Bible. Challenging at some deep core issues that can reside in us at times. So we dress them in our politics, we dress them in our nationalism. Ready for number three? Oh, it got quiet in church this morning. Number three, we dress Jesus in our race. Galatians chapter 2, 11 through 14, but when Cephas came to Antioch, this is Paul writing, he says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. You're like, wow, Paul, calm down. But he went for it. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas, Paul's closest friend, who actually led him into ministry and said, come on, you can do this, was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? This was the racism of their time. This was what they were dealing with, these classes and these race issues that they were facing. Remember the woman at the well? Jesus would interact with the first thing that he says, or she says to him, it's like, hey, I'm a Samaritan woman. You're a Jewish man. You shouldn't be talking to me. And Jesus goes like this, yeah, I kind of don't care about that. <laughs> and he has a conversation with her. <laughs> See, the New American Commentary writes this, and puts an emphasis on this interaction in order to bring insight to the reality of this moment. They're right. Antioch was far to the north of Jerusalem. It stood at the geographical and political crossroads of east and west. A veritable melting pot of diverse civilizations and cultures. And looking back from the distance of two millennia, we can now see that the controversy at Antioch was more than a clash between two apostles. It was a collision between two ways of being Christian. Paul was dealing head-on with the same challenges that we are facing today when it comes to racial tension and divide in our nation and in our world. Let me say this very clear. When we see racial tension and divide justified in the name of Jesus, supported by the name of Jesus, and enacted in the name of Jesus, it is no longer the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus was not white. I'm just putting that out there. Like, have you ever seen the pictures before when he looks like Hans from Sweden? Like, <laughs> he didn't have blue eyes. I've seen the pictures. I'm like, when did Jesus become Fabio? Like, <laughs> what happened here? <laughs> Why? Everybody meet Jesus. He yodels. Like, that doesn't happen. <laughs> the hills are... <laughs> Jesus was not white. Jesus was not black. He was not Latino or Asian. To be fair, Jesus was, in fact, a Middle Eastern Jewish carpenter. And so he was. And you see, dressing Jesus in our race inevitably leads to a very myopic and slanted view on the world and the people that we've been called to stand with in the world. And the current climate that we find ourselves in now is fueled by this reality as it pertains to current race relations and divisions in our country. And for many, this is a topic that should not be spoken about in church which in fact sheds light on the very issue and why I'm addressing it now. If there is a place that we should deal with this subject matter, it's church. 
because church, the body of Christ, is the redemptive message to the world around us. When the church gets silent, everything falls down. We can't be silent on these issues. We can't be silent on the things happening in the world around us. We need to address it. And me, as a pastor here at the well, if I have to address it and it gets us a little uncomfortable, that's fine. Because I don't like physicals either, but sometimes we need them. (laughs) And just do what you need to do with that illustration. When we dress Jesus in our race, it causes blindness to the people around us who in many, or who may in fact have a totally different life experience than us. When the Bible calls us to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice in doing so, it does it with the assumption that we have not dressed Jesus up in anything other than who he is as the great grace enabler, giving us the ability to live accordingly. As a multicultural and multiracial church, which I am committed to building and continuing to build in this valley, I am acutely aware that my experience as a white male in America is vastly different than every other race that is represented in this room today across all of our services. And because of this, I cannot dress Jesus in my race. Rather, I must, with great humility, accept the responsibility of understanding what others, different from myself, are experiencing. In doing so, I am then given the privilege of seeing others as Christ sees them, which enables me to effect change in the world around me. I can then truly say, I weep with those who weep, and I rejoice with those who rejoice. So we can't dress Jesus in our politics. We can't dress him in our nationality. We can't we can't dress them in our race. And the, third, and the fourth thing that we actually do dress Jesus in is we dress them in our culture. In a recent article in Relevant Magazine, one author writes this. The problem is that in the context of American Christianity, where religious images are often absent, pop culture representations of the faith can become the formative symbols and images that a faith community encounters. People begin to actually see Jesus primarily through the lens of materialism and pop culture, both of which by their very nature are constantly in flux. As a result, evangelical faith becomes faddish. Salvation is a style and praise is a phase. When the church employs superficial symbols to communicate the gospel, the gospel can only take hold of a people on a superficial level. Come on, we've seen it, haven't we? Remember the days when Jesus was our homeboy? (laughs) Buddy Jesus, bobblehead Jesus. Because we've dressed him in our culture. We made Jesus a skinny jean wearing V-neck hipster (laughs) of our current generation. Like I said this morning, I'm an equal opportunity offender. I love you all, but I'm gonna put it all out there for us. We've dressed him in in our culture. See, dressing Jesus in our culture diminishes the culture he came to instill in us, kingdom culture. When we dress Jesus in our culture, he becomes an icon that we put on our shirts, not a seal that we put on our hearts. So these, among many other things, are what we dress Jesus in. We've taken an in-depth look at this problem, and I've spent a lot of time. Like, I love carbohydrate Sundays, as I call them. 
right? You know, like the donut portions of the scripture where you're just like, mm, oh, that's so good, <laughs> right? <laughs> and you walked out of here hyped on sugar, and you're just like, yeah, it was awesome. I'm just pumped, charge hell with a squirt gun. And then there's meat and potato Sunday, right. where you're just like, oh, I'm full, <laughs> right? I got the meat sweats. Like, this is hard. <laughs> that's this weekend. So we have to take an in-depth look at the problem. Why? Because great action is only possible where there's great assessment. We have to wrestle with these things in order to identify where we're at. Okay. So with just a little bit of time that I have left, here we go. Three things that we need to understand happen when we stop dressing Jesus. When we allow Jesus to just be Jesus, three things happen, I believe, in our lives and in this world. Come on, every shot number one. Come on, with faith this morning, every shout number one. The first thing Jesus does is he unites what is divided. He unites what is divided. This is about our horizontal relationship with people. John chapter 13, 34 through 35, this is kind of the blanket statement to all of us that we need to hear this morning. I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And by this, not by your Instagram, not by your Facebook, not by your little t-shirt that has a cross on it, not by your what would Jesus do bracelet, by this, your love for everyone, for people, they will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We don't love people who think like us. We don't love people who look like us. We don't, it's not about us feeling comfortable with who we are because true love is not love if the preference of our love is built upon likeness. That's not love. My wife is not like me. Thank God. But I love her. Why? Because she's the polar opposite to me. I don't want to love somebody like me. It's not healthy. That's what the to love one another. We are being representations of Jesus in our world when we learn to love others. Jesus unites what is divided. The second thing that Jesus does when we stop dressing him up in what we dress him in, Jesus heals what has been wounded. First Peter chapter 2, 21 through 25. For you were called to this. <laughs> If you came in here this morning going, like, what's my call? What's my purpose? What do I do? You were called to this. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. Watch what he says. By his wounds you have been healed for you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And so many times what we do is we look at this scripture and many others that talk about healing and we see it one dimensionally. We think, oh, I have cancer. By his wounds I am healed. Well, yeah, for sure. He wants to heal you. He wants to, he wants to heal the physical issues that we have. But his healing power goes beyond our physical issues. 
He heals mental wounds. He heals heart wounds. He heals soul wounds. He heals wounds in a world where because of human friction, we've messed each other up. He heals those wounds. And when we preach the name of Jesus, the name that is above every other name, we have the opportunity to heal the world. Maybe you've heard this before. Wounded people wound people. Hurt people hurt people. But healed people heal people. There's healing in his name. There's healing in Jesus. Jesus heals what has been wounded. So if we stop dressing him in these things, and we let Jesus be Jesus, come on somebody, he'll heal what's been wounded. He'll heal our hearts. He'll heal you and I of the indifference that we can have sometimes. We've got to get in the game. And we do this by allowing Jesus to heal. And the last one is this. The third one is this. Come on, number three. Number three. Y'all good this morning? All right. Number three. Jesus reconciles what has been separated. Watch what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 16 through 21 says. I love this verse. He says, from now on, then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we've known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know him in this way. And therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry. He's given us what? He's given you and you and you and me the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation being the ability to take what was divided and bringing it together and where there are chasms of division in our world. The people of God have the ability to move those mountains together and maybe, just maybe, that's what Jesus Jesus said, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you will move mountains, opposing mountains, who don't want to be together. We said, no, we're bringing them back together in Jesus' name. Because some of us have gotten tripped up and we said, well, what does Jesus mean about a mustard seed in a mountain? You can't inevitably move mountains. It's a mountain. Maybe it wasn't the mountain that we stare at in the Wasatch Front. Maybe it's the mountain of indifference and division. A mustard seed will move that mountain. He goes on. That's in Christ, verse 19. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And then he's committed the message of reconciliation to us. And then watch what he says. If this doesn't get you amped, I don't know what. Men, this is for us this morning. Therefore, not like I'm creating a division, we just like words like this, okay? Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. This is our moment to put that suit on. James Bonded, I'm an ambassador of Christ. You get to go into the world and be an ambassador for Christ. That's exciting. So I love it because it just gives me all hype to like, oh. You're ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. That's scary though, isn't it? So we can look at ourselves and we go, how, me? Me? That's what's hard with the tension of this message is because we can look at the brokenness in our world and yet God says, I'm going to work through you. I'm going to work in you. I'm going to work through your brokenness. How do you do that, God? 
I don't know. It's one of the many questions I'll have for him. Be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus reconciles what has been separated. I believe that if Jesus can do that in our world and in our nation, he can do it in our marriages. He can do it in our relationships. He can do it in our churches. He can do it in our neighborhoods. He can do it in our workplaces. He can do it in our schools. Come on, he can do it in all these different places. Why? Because you're an ambassador. Come on, touch the person next to you on the shoulder. I don't care if you're uncomfortable with it, but just touch them and say, you're an ambassador. Come on, you're an ambassador. But Jason, I don't know the Bible very well. You're an ambassador. Oh, but I don't pray all the time. You're an ambassador. But I don't know about this whole worship thing. You're an ambassador. I don't have all the qualifications. You're an ambassador. I'm a stay-at-home mom. You're an ambassador. I'm the CEO of a corporation. You're an ambassador. I just kind of hang out. You're an ambassador. You, church, are an ambassador for Jesus in this world. So declare his